Will Conan and Yasmina escape the magical machinations of the man in the green turban? Robert E. Howard, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you can receive a corresponding thank you code for $8 off any digital audiobook download. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a member today. There are many ways you can also support the podcast, through purchasing our app, merchandise, or telling your friends about us. Links can be found in the notes to today's episode. And if you have the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. That's still a thing. And thank you, Spotify, for featuring us again on your curated Mind Massage playlist. Hunchback is coming along nicely. And I recorded another episode today. Wow, that is an amazing story. I have six hours left. I'd like to get it done by the end of September. So please make sure your supporter status is up to date so you don't miss out on this amazing story. As with other titles we've done in the past, today we're going to run into some things that are problematic. We haven't run into this much misogyny before, but I simply can't let this go without calling it out. There is a part in the story where Conan is way out of line and decides to give himself liberties without Yasmina's consent. I don't want to get all preachy, but parents, this is a good chance to pause the story and talk to your kids. Maybe, if you want to. Anyway, here's our personal moment for the week. Uh, On Sunday morning at 6.30, we hit the trail. We went to Stewart Falls, uh, up Provo Canyon, up past Sundance Ski Resort where the film festival situation is. It was incredible. It was a beautiful hike. It took us three hours round trip. It was a good thing we started at 6.30 because we were done by 9.30 and it was starting to get really hot. But it was a lot of fun. So, that's our personal moment. Thank you very much. And now, The People of the Black Circle, Part 2 of 4, by Robert E. Howard. Chapter 5. The Black Stallion The sun was well up when Yasmina woke. She did not start and stare blankly, wondering where she was. She awoke with full knowledge of all that had occurred. Her supple limbs were stiff from her long ride, and her firm flesh seemed to feel the contact of the muscular arm that had borne her so far. She was lying on a sheepskin covering a pallet of leaves on a hard-beaten dirt floor. A folded sheepskin coat was under her head, and she was wrapped in a ragged cloak. She was in a large room, the walls of which were crudely but strongly built of uncut rocks, plastered with sun-baked mud. Heavy beams supported a roof of the same kind, in which showed a trap door, up to which led a ladder. There were no windows in the thick walls, only loopholes. There was one door, 
a sturdy bronze affair that must have been looted from some Vandayan border town. Opposite it was a strong opening in the wall, with no door, but several strong wooden bars in place. Beyond them, Yasmina saw a magnificent black stallion munching a pile of dried grass. The building was fort, dwelling place, and stable in one. At the other end of the room, a girl in the vest and baggy trousers of a hill woman squatted beside a small fire, cooking strips of meat on an iron grid laid over blocks of stone. There was a sooty cleft in the wall a few feet from the floor, and some of the smoke found its way out there. The rest floated in blue wisps about the room. The hill girl glanced at Yasmina over her shoulder, displaying a bold, handsome face, and then continued her cooking. Voices boomed outside. Then the door was kicked open, and Conan strode in. He looked more enormous than ever, with the morning sunlight behind him, and Yasmina noted some details that had escaped her the night before. His garments were clean and not ragged. The broad bakhariot girdle that supported his knife in its ornamented scabbard would have matched the robes of a prince, and there was a glint of fine Turanian mail under his shirt. Your captive is awake, Conan, said the Wazuli girl, and he grunted, strode up to the fire, and swept the strips of mutton off into a stone dish. The squatting girl laughed up at him with some spicy jest, and he grinned wolfishly, and hooking a toe under her haunches, tumbled her sprawling onto the floor. She seemed to derive considerable amusement from this bit of rough horseplay, but Conan paid no more heed to her. Producing a great hunk of bread from somewhere, with a copper jug of wine, he carried the lot to Yasmina, who had risen from her pallet and was regarding him doubtfully. Rough fare for a Devi girl, but our best, he grunted. It will fill your belly at least. He set the platter on the floor, and she was suddenly aware of a ravenous hunger. Making no comment, she seated herself cross-legged on the floor, and taking the dish in her lap, she began to eat, using her fingers, which were all she had in the way of table utensils. After all, adaptability is one of the tests of true aristocracy. Conan stood looking down at her, his thumbs hooked in his girdle. He never sat cross-legged after the eastern fashion. Where am I? she asked abruptly. In the hut of Yar Afsal, the chief of the Kurum Wazulis, he answered. Afghulistan lies a good many miles farther on to the west. We'll hide here a while. The Kshatriyas are beating up the hills for you. Several of their squads have been cut up by the tribes already. What are you going to do? she asked. Keep you until Chunder Shan is willing to trade back my seven cow thieves, he grunted. Women of the Wazulis are crushing ink out of shoki leaves, and after a while you can write a letter to the governor. A touch of her old imperious wrath shook her as she thought how maddeningly her plans had gone awry, leaving her captive of the very man she had plotted to get into her power. She flung down the dish, with the remnants of her meal, and sprang to her feet, tense with anger. I will not write a letter! If you do not take me back, they will hang your seven men, and a thousand more besides! The Wazuli girl laughed mockingly. Conan scowled, 
and then the door opened, and Yar Afsal came swaggering in. The Wazuli chief was as tall as Conan, and of greater girth, but he looked fat and slow beside the hard compactness of the Cimmerian. He plucked his red-stained beard and stared meaningly at the Wazuli girl, and that wench rose and scurried out without delay. Then Yar Afsal turned to his guest. "'A damnable people murmur, Conan,' quoth he. "'They wish me to murder you and take the girl to hold for ransom. "'They say that any one can tell by her garments that she is a noble lady. "'They say, why should the Afku dogs profit by her, "'when it is the people who take the risk of guarding her?' "'Lend me your horse,' said Conan. "'I'll take her and go.' "'Pish!' boomed Yarafzal. "'Do you think I can't handle my own people? "'I'll have them dancing in their shirts if they cross me. "'They don't love you, nor any outlander. "'But you saved my life once, and I will not forget. "'Come out, though, Conan. A scout has returned.' "'Conan hitched at his girdle and followed the chief outside. "'They closed the door after them, and Yasmina peeped through a loophole.' She looked out on a level space before the hut. At the farther end of that space, there was a cluster of mud and stone huts, and she saw naked children playing among the boulders, and the slim, erect women of the hills going about their tasks. Directly before the chief's hut, a circle of hairy, ragged men squatted, facing the door. Conan and Yar Afsal stood a few paces before the door, and between them and the ring of warriors, Another man sat cross-legged. This one was addressing his chief in the harsh accents of the Wazuli, which Yasmina could scarcely understand, though, as part of her royal education, she had been taught the languages of Iranistan and the kindred tongues of Gulistan. "'I talked with the Lagosai who saw the riders last night,' said the scout. "'He was lurking near where they came to the spot where we ambushed the Lord Conan.' He overheard their speech. Chundashan was with them. They found the dead horse, and one of the men recognized it as Conan's. Then they found the man Conan slew, and knew him for a Wazuli. It seemed to them that Conan had been slain, and the girl taken by the Wazuli. So they turned aside from their purpose of following to Afghulistan. But they did not know from which village... The dead man was come, and we had left no trail a Shatria could follow. So they rode to the nearest Wajuli village, which was the village of Yugra, and burnt it and slew many of the people. But the men of Kojur came upon them in the darkness and slew some of them and wounded the governor. So the survivors retired down the Zaibar in the darkness before dawn. But... They returned with reinforcement before sunrise, and there had been skirmishing and fighting in the hills all morning. It is said that a great army is being raised to sweep the hills about the Zaibar. The tribes are wetting their knives and laying ambushes in every pass from here to Gurashah Valley. Moreover, Karim Shah has returned to the hills. A grunt went around the circle and Yasmina leaned closer to the loophole at the name she had begun to mistrust. "'Where went he?' demanded Yar Afsal. 
that I go I did not know. With them was that the Iraqsai of the lower villages. They rode into the hills and disappeared. These Iraqsai are jackals that follow a lion for crumbs, growled Yarafsal. They have been lapping up the coins Kerim Shah scatters among the border tribes to buy men like horses. I like him not, for all he is our kinsman from Iranistan. He's not even that, said Conan. I know him of old. He's an Hyrcanian, a spy of Yezdegerd's. If I catch him, I'll hang his hide to a tamarisk. But the Shatrias, clamored the men in the semicircle. Are we to squat on our haunches until they smoke us out? They will learn at last at which Wazoo village the wenches held. We are not loved by the Zaibari. They will help the Kshatriyas hunt us out. Let them come, grunted Yarafsal. We can hold the defiles against a host. One of the men leaped up and shook his fist at Conan. Are we to take all the risks while he reaps the rewards? He howled. Are we to fight his battles for him? With a stride, Conan reached him and bent slightly to stare full into his hairy face. The Cimmerian had not drawn his long knife, but his left hand grasped the scabbard, jutting the hilt suggestively forward. I ask no man to fight my battles, he said softly. Draw your blade if you dare, you yapping dog. The wazoo started back, snarling like a cat. Dare to touch me, and here are fifty men to rend you apart, he screeched. What? roared Yar Afsal, his face purpling with wrath. His whiskers bristled, his belly swelled with his rage. Are you a chief of Kurum? Do the Wazulis take orders from Yar Afsal, or from a low-bred cur? The man cringed before his invincible chief, and Yar Afsal, striding up to him, seized him by the throat and choked him until his face was turning black. Then he hurled the man savagely against the ground and stood over him with his tulwar in his hand. "'Is there any who questions my authority?' he roared, and his warriors looked down sullenly as his bellicose glare swept their semicircle. Yar Afsal grunted scornfully and sheathed his weapon with a gesture that was the apex of insult. Then he kicked the fallen agitator with a concentrated vindictiveness that brought howls from his victim. Get down the valley to the watchers on the heights and bring word if they have seen anything, commanded Yar Afsal, and the man went, shaking with fear and grinding his teeth with fury. Yar Afsal then seated himself ponderously on a stone, growling in his beard. Conan stood near him, legs braced apart, thumbs hooked in his girdle, narrowly watching the assembled warriors. They stared at him sullenly, not daring to brave Yar Afsal's fury, but hating the foreigner as only a hillman can hate. Now listen to me, you sons of nameless dogs, while I tell you what the Lord Conan and I have planned to fool the Kshatriyas. The boom of Yar Afsal's bull-like voice followed the discomfited warrior as he slunk away from the assembly. The man passed by the cluster of huts, where women who had seen his defeat laughed at him and called stinging comments, 
and hastened on along the trail that wound among spurs and rocks toward the valley head. Just as he rounded the first turn that took him out of sight of the village, he stopped short, gaping stupidly. He had not believed it possible for a stranger to enter the valley of Kurun without being detected by the hawk-eyed watchers along the heights. Yet a man sat cross-legged on a low ledge beside the path, a man in a camel-hair robe and a green turban. The Wazuli's mouth gaped for a yell, and his hand leaped to his knife-hilt. But at that instant his eyes met those of the stranger, and the cry died in his throat. His fingers went limp. He stood like a statue, his own eyes glazed and vacant. For minutes the scene held motionless. Then the man on the ledge drew a cryptic symbol in the dust on the rock with his forefinger. The Wazuli did not see him place anything within the compass of that emblem, but presently something gleamed there, a round, shiny black ball that looked like polished jade. The man in the green turban took this up and tossed it to the Wazuli, who mechanically caught it. Carry this to Yar Afsal, he said, and the Wazuli turned like an automaton and went back along the path, holding the black jade ball in his outstretched hand. He did not even turn his head to the renewed jeers of the women as he passed the huts. He did not seem to hear. The man on the ledge gazed after him with a cryptic smile. A girl's head rose above the rim of the ledge, and she looked at him with admiration and a touch of fear that had not been present the night before. Why did you do that? she asked. He ran his fingers through her dark locks caressingly. Are you still dizzy from your flight on the horse of air, that you doubt my wisdom? He laughed. As long as your Afsal lives, Conan will bide safe among the Wazuli fighting men. Their knives are sharp, and there are many of them. What I plot will be safer, even for me, than to seek to slay him and take her from among them. It takes no wizard to predict what the Wazulis will do, and what Conan will do, when my victim hands the globe of Yazud to the chief of Kurum. Back before the hut, Yar Afsal halted in the midst of some tirade, surprised and displeased to see the man he had sent up the valley pushing his way through the throng. I bade you go to the watchers, the chief bellowed, you have not had time to come from them. The other did not reply. He stood, woodenly, staring vacantly into the chief's face, his palm outstretched, holding the jade ball. Conan, looking over Yar Afsal's shoulder, murmured something and reached to touch the chief's arm. But as he did so, Yar Afsal, in a paroxysm of anger, struck the man with his clenched fist and felled him like an ox. As he fell, the jade sphere rolled to Yar Afsal's foot, and the chief, seeming to see it for the first time, bent and picked it up. The men, staring perplexedly at their senseless comrade, saw their chief bend, but they did not see what he picked up from the ground. Yar Afsal straightened, glanced at the jade, and made a motion to thrust it into his girdle. Carry that fool to his hut, he growled. He has the look of a lotus eater. 
He returned me a blank stare. I... In his right hand, moving toward his girdle, he had suddenly felt movement where movement should not be. His voice died away as he stood and glared at nothing. And inside his clenched right hand, he felt the quivering of change, of motion, of life. He no longer held a smooth, shining sphere in his fingers, and he dared not look. His tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not open his hand. His astonished warriors saw Yar Afsal's eyes distend, the color ebb from his face. Then suddenly a bellow of agony burst from his bearded lips. He swayed and fell as if struck by lightning. His right arm tossed out in front of him. Face down he lay, and from between his opening fingers crawled a spider, a hideous, black, hairy-legged monster whose body shone like black jade. The men yelled and gave back suddenly, and the creature scuttled into a crevice of the rocks and disappeared. The warriors started up, glaring wildly, and a voice rose above their clamor, a far-carrying voice of command, which came from none knew where. Afterward, each man there, who still lived, denied that he had shouted, but all there heard it. Yar Afsal is dead! Kill the outlander! That shout focused their whirling minds as one. Doubt, bewilderment, and fear vanished in the uproaring surge of the bloodlust. A furious yell rent the skies as the tribesmen responded instantly to the suggestion. They came headlong across the open space, cloaks flapping, eyes blazing, knives lifted. Conan's action was as quick as theirs. As the voice shouted, he sprang for the hut door, but they were closer to him than he was to the door, and with one foot on the sill he had to wheel and parry the swipe of a yard-long blade. He split the man's skull, ducked another swinging knife, and gutted the wielder, felled a man with his left fist and stabbed another in the belly, and heaved back mightily against the closed door with his shoulders. Hacking blades were nicking chips out of the jams about his ears, but the door flew open under the impact of his shoulders, and he went stumbling backward into the room. A bearded tribesman, thrusting with all his fury as Conan sprang back, overreached, and pitched headfirst through the doorway. Conan stopped, grasped the slack of his garments, and hauled him clear, and slammed the door in the faces of the men who came surging into it. Bones snapped under the impact, and the next instant Conan slammed the bolts into place and whirled with desperate haste to meet the man who sprang from the floor and tore into action like a madman. Yasmina cowered in a corner, staring in horror as the two men fought back and forth across the room, almost trampling her at times. The flash and clangor of their blades filled the room, and outside the mob clamored like a wolf pack, hacking deafeningly at the bronze door with their long knives and dashing huge rocks against it. Somebody fetched a tree trunk, and the door began to stagger under the thunderous assault. Yasmina clasped her ears, staring wildly. Violence and fury within, cataclysmic madness without. The stallion in his stall neighed and reared, thundering with his heels against the walls. He wheeled and launched his hoofs through the bars, just as the tribesmen, 
backing away from Conan's murderous swipes, stumbled against them. His spine cracked in three places like a rotten branch, and he was hurled headlong against the Cimmerian, bearing him backward so that they both crashed to the beaten floor. Yasmina cried out and ran forward. To her dazed sight, it seemed that both were slain. She reached them just as Conan threw aside the corpse and rose. She caught his arm, trembling from head to foot. Oh, you live! I thought... I thought you were dead! He glanced down at her quickly, into the pale, upturned face and the wide, staring dark eyes. Why are you trembling? he demanded. Why should you care if I live or die? A vestige of her poise returned to her, and she drew away, making a rather pitiful attempt at playing the devi. You are preferable to those wolves howling without, she answered, gesturing toward the door, the stone sill of which was beginning to splinter away. That won't hold long, he muttered, then turned and went swiftly to the stall of the stallion. Yasmina clenched her hands and caught her breath as she saw him tear aside the splintered bars and go into the stall with the maddened beast. The stallion reared above him, neighing terribly, hoofs lifted, eyes and teeth flashing and ears laid back. But Conan leaped and caught his mane with a display of sheer strength that seemed impossible, and dragged the beast down on his forelegs. The steed snorted and quivered, but stood still while the man bridled him and clapped on the gold-worked saddle with the wide silver stirrups. Wheeling the beast around in the stall, Conan called quickly to Yasmina, and the girl came, sidling nervously past the stallion's heels. Conan was working at the stone wall, talking swiftly as he worked. A secret door in the wall here, that not even the Wazuli know about. Yar Afsal showed it to me once when he was drunk. It opens out into the mouth of the ravine behind the hut. <laughs> as he tugged at a projection that seemed casual, a whole section of the wall slid back on oiled iron runners. Looking through, the girl saw a narrow defile opening in a sheer stone cliff within a few feet of the hut's back wall. Then Conan sprang into the saddle and hauled her up before him. Behind them, the great door groaned like a living thing and crashed in, and a yell rang to the roof as the entrance was instantly flooded with hairy faces and knives in hairy fists and then the great stallion went through the wall like a javelin from a catapult, and thundered into the defile, running low, foam flying from the bit-rings. That move came as an absolute surprise to the Wazulis. It was a surprise, too, to those stealing down the ravine. It happened so quickly, the hurricane-like charge of the great horse, that a man in a green turban was unable to get out of the way. He went down under the frantic hooves, and a girl screamed. Conan got one glimpse of her as they thundered by, a slim, dark girl in silk trousers and a bejeweled breastband, flattening herself against the ravine wall. Then the black horse and his riders were gone up the gorge like the spume blown before a storm, and the men who came tumbling through the wall into the defile after them met that which changed their yells of bloodlust to shrill screams of fear and death. Chapter 6 The Mountain of the Black Seers Where now? Yasmina was trying to sit erect on the rocking saddle bow, clutching her captor. She was conscious of a recognition of shame 
that she should not find unpleasant the feel of his muscular flesh under her fingers. To Afghulistan, he answered. It's a perilous road, but the stallion will carry us easily, unless we fall in with some of your friends or my tribal enemies. Now that Yar Afsal is dead, those damned Wazulis will be on our heels. I'm surprised we haven't sighted them behind us already. Who was that man you rode down? she asked. I don't know. I never saw him before. He's no ghouli, that's certain. What the devil he was doing there is more than I can say. There was a girl with him, too. Yes. Her gaze was shadowed. I cannot understand that. That girl was my maid, Gitara. Do you suppose she was coming to aid me? That the man was a friend? If so, the Wazulis have captured them both. Well, he answered, there's nothing we can do. If we go back, they'll skin us both. I can't understand how a girl like that could get this far in the mountains with only one man, and he a robed scholar, for that's what he looked like. There's something infernally queer in all this. That fellow, Yarafsal beat and sent away. He moved like a man walking in his sleep. I've seen the priests of Zamora perform their abominable rituals in their forbidden temples, and their victims had a stare like that man. The priests looked into their eyes and muttered incantations, and then the people became the walking dead men, with glassy eyes, doing as they were ordered. And then I saw what the fellow had in his hand, which Yar Afsal picked up. It was like a big black jade bead, such as the temple girls of Yezud wear when they dance before the black stone spider, which is their god. Yar Afsal held it in his hand, and he didn't pick up anything else. Yet when he fell dead, a spider, like the god at Yezud, only smaller, ran out of his fingers. And then when the Wazulis stood uncertain there, a voice cried out for them to kill me, and I know that voice didn't come from any of the warriors, nor from the women who watched by the huts. It seemed to come from above. Yasmina did not reply. She glanced at the stark outlines of the mountains all about them and shuddered. Her soul shrank from their gaunt brutality. This was a grim, naked land where anything might happen. Age-old traditions invested it with shuddery horror for anyone born in the hot, luxuriant southern plains. The sun was high, beating down with fierce heat, yet the wind that blew in fitful gusts seemed to sweep off slopes of ice. Once she heard a strange rushing above them that was not the sweep of the wind, and from the way Conan looked up, she knew it was not a common sound to him either. She thought that a strip of the cold blue sky was momentarily blurred, as if some all but invisible object had swept between it and herself, but she could not be sure. Neither made any comment, but Conan loosed the knife in his scabbard. They were following a faintly marked path, dipping down into ravines so deep the sun never struck bottom laboring up steep slopes where loose shale threatened to slide from beneath their feet, and following knife-edge ridges with blue-hazed echoing depths on either hand. The sun had passed its zenith when they crossed a narrow trail, winding among the crags. Conan reined the horse aside and followed it southward, 
going almost at right angles to their former course. A Galzai village is at one end of this trail, he explained. Their women follow it to a well for water. You need new garments. Glancing down at her filmy attire, Yasmina agreed with him. Her cloth of gold slippers were in tatters, her robes and silken undergarments torn to shreds that scarcely held together decently. Garments meant for the streets of Peshkuri were hardly appropriate for the crags of the Hemelians. Coming to a crook in the trail, Conan dismounted, helped Yasmina down, and waited. Presently he nodded, though she heard nothing. A woman coming along the trail, he remarked. In sudden panic she clutched his arm. You will not, not kill her? I don't kill women ordinarily, he grunted. Though some of the hill women are she-wolves, no, he grinned, as at a huge jest. By crumb, I'll pay for her clothes. How is that? He displayed a large handful of gold coins, and replaced all but the largest. She nodded, much relieved. It was perhaps natural for men to slay and die. Her flesh crawled at the thought of watching the butchery of a woman. Presently a woman appeared around the crook of the trail, a tall, slim, Galzai girl, straight as a young sapling, bearing a great empty gourd. She stopped short, and the gourd fell from her hands when she saw them. She wavered as though to run, then realized that Conan was too close to her to allow her to escape, and so stood still, staring at them with a mixed expression of fear and curiosity. Conan displayed the gold coin. If you will give this woman your garments, he said, I will give you this money. The response was instant. The girl smiled broadly with surprise and delight, and with the disdain of a hill woman for prudish conventions, promptly yanked off her sleeveless embroidered vest, slipped down her wide trousers, and stepped out of them, twitched off her wide-sleeved shirt, and kicked off her sandals. Bundling them all in a bunch, she proffered them to Conan who handed them to the astonished Devi. "'Get behind that rock and put these on,' he directed, further proving himself no native hillman. "'Fold your robes up into a bundle and bring them to me when you come out.' "'The money!' clamored the hill girl, stretching out her hands eagerly. "'The gold you promised me!' Conan flipped the coin to her. She caught it, bit, then thrust it into her hair, bent and caught up the gourd, and went on down the path, as devoid of self-consciousness as of garments. Conan waited with some impatience while the Devi, for the first time in her pampered life, dressed herself. When she stepped from behind the rock, he swore in surprise, and she felt a curious rush of emotions at the unrestrained admiration burning in his fierce blue eyes. She felt shame, embarrassment, yet a stimulation of vanity she had never before experienced and a tingling when meeting the impact of his eyes. He laid a heavy hand on her shoulder and turned her about, staring avidly at her from all angles. By crumb, said he, in those smoky mystic robes you were aloof and cold and far off as a star. Now you are a woman of warm flesh and blood. You went behind that rock as the Devi of Vendya. You come out as a hill girl though a thousand times more beautiful than any wench of the Zybar. You were a goddess. Now you are real.
he spanked her resoundingly, and she, recognizing this as merely another expression of admiration, did not feel outraged. It was indeed as if the changing of her garments had wrought a change in her personality. The feelings and sensations she had suppressed rose to domination in her now, as if the queenly robes she had cast off had been material shackles and inhibitions. But Conan, in his renewed admiration, did not forget that peril lurked all about them. The farther they drew away from the region of the Zaibar, the less likely he was to encounter any Kshatriya troops. On the other hand, he had been listening all throughout their flight for sounds that would tell him the vengeful Wazulis of Kurum were on their heels. Swinging the Devi up, he followed her into the saddle and again reined the saddle westward. The bundle of garments she had given him he hurled over a cliff to fall into the depths of a thousand-foot gorge. Why did you do that? she asked. Why did you not give them to the girl? The riders from Peshkuri are combing these hills, he said. They'll be ambushed and harried at every turn, and by way of reprisal they'll destroy every village they can take. They may turn westward any time. If they found a girl wearing your garments, they'd torture her into talking, and she might put them on my trail. What will she do? asked Yasmina. Go back to her village and tell her people that a stranger attacked her, he answered. She'll have them on our track all right, but she had to go on and get the water first. If she dared go back without it, they'd whip the skin off her. That gives us a long start. They'll never catch us. By nightfall, we'll cross the Afgu border. There are no paths or signs of human habitation in these parts, she commented. Even for the Himelians, this region seems singularly deserted. We have not seen a trail since we left the one where we met the Galzai woman. For answer, he pointed to the northwest, where she glimpsed a peak in a notch of the crags. Yimsha, grunted Conan. The tribes build their villages as far from the mountain as they can. She was instantly rigid with attention. Yimsha, she whispered. The mountain of the Black Seers? So they say, he answered. This is as near as I ever approached it. I have swung north to avoid any Kshatriya troops that might be prowling through the hills. The regular trail from Kurum to Afghulistan lies farther south. This is an ancient one, and seldom used. She was staring intently at the distant peak. Her nails bit into her pink palms. How long would it take to reach Yimsha from this point? All the rest of the day and all night, he answered, and grinned. Do you want to go there? By Krom, it's no place for an ordinary human, from what the hill people say. Why do they not gather and destroy the devils that inhabit it? she demanded. Wipe out wizards with swords? Anyway, they never interfere with people, unless the people interfere with them. I never saw one of them, though I've talked with men who swore they had. They say they've glimpsed people from the tower among the crags at sunset or sunrise. Tall, silent men, in black robes. Would you be afraid to attack them? Aye. The idea seemed a new one to him. Why, if they imposed upon me, it would be my life or theirs. But I have nothing to do with them. I came to these mountains to raise a following of human beings, not to war with wizards. 
Yasmina did not at once reply. She stared at the peak as at a human enemy, feeling all her anger and hatred stir in her bosom anew. And another feeling began to take dim shape. She had plotted to hurl against the masters of Yimsha the man in whose arms she was now carried. Perhaps there was another way, besides the method she had planned to accomplish her purpose. She could not mistake the look that was beginning to dawn in this wild man's eyes as they rested on her. Kingdoms had fallen when a woman's slim white hands pulled the strings of destiny. Suddenly she stiffened, pointing. Look! Just visible on the distant peak, there hung a cloud of peculiar aspect. It was a frosty crimson in color, veined with sparkling gold. This cloud was in motion. It rotated, and as it whirled, it contracted. It dwindled to a spinning taper that flashed in the sun, and suddenly it detached itself from the snow-tipped peak, floated out over the void like a gay-hued feather, and became invisible against the cerulean sky. What could that have been? asked the girl uneasily, as a shoulder of rock shut the distant mountain from view. The phenomenon had been disturbing, even in its beauty. The hillmen call it Yimsha's carpet, whatever that means, answered Conan. I've seen five hundred of them running as if the devil were at their heels to hide themselves in caves and crags, because they saw that crimson cloud float up from the peak. What in? They had advanced through a narrow, knife-cut gash between turreted walls, and emerged upon a broad ledge, flanked by a series of rugged slopes on one hand and a gigantic precipice on the other. The dim trail followed this ledge, bent around a shoulder, and reappeared at intervals far below, working a tedious way downward. And emerging from the cut that opened upon the ledge, the black stallion halted short, snorting. Conan urged him on impatiently, and the horse snorted and threw his head up and down, quivering and straining, as if against an invisible barrier. Conan swore and swung off, lifting Yasmina down with him. He went forward, with a hand thrown out before him as if expecting to encounter unseen resistance. But there was nothing to hinder him, though when he tried to lead the horse, it neighed shrilly and jerked back. Then Yasmina cried out, and Conan wheeled, hands starting to knife-hilt. Neither of them had seen him come, but he stood there with his arms folded, a man in a camel-hair robe and a green turban. Conan grunted with surprise to recognize the man the stallion had spurned in the ravine outside the Wazuli village. "'Who the devil are you?' he demanded. The man did not answer. Conan noticed that his eyes were wide, fixed, and of a peculiar luminous quality, and those eyes held his like a magnet." Kemza's sorcery was based on hypnotism, as is the case with most Eastern magic. The way has been prepared for the hypnotist for untold centuries of generations who have lived and died in the firm conviction of the reality and power of hypnotism, building up, by mass thought and practice, a colossal, though intangible atmosphere, against which the individual, steeped in the traditions of the land, finds himself helpless. But Conan was not a son of the East. Its traditions were meaningless to him. 
he was the product of an utterly alien atmosphere. Hypnotism was not even a myth in Samaria. The heritage that prepared a native of the East for submission to the mesmerist was not his. He was aware of what Kemza was trying to do to him, but he felt the impact of the man's uncanny power only as a vague impulsion, a tugging and pulling that he could shake off as a man shakes spider webs from his garments. Aware of hostility and black magic, he ripped out his long knife and lunged, as quick on his feet as a mountain lion. But hypnotism was not all of Kemsa's magic. Yasmina, watching, did not see by what roguery of movement or illusion the man in the green turban avoided the terrible disemboweling thrust. But the keen blade wickered between side and lifted arm, and to Yasmina it seemed that Kemsa merely brushed his open palm lightly against Conan's bull neck. But the Sumerian went down like a slain ox. Yet Conan was not dead. Breaking his fall with his left hand, he slashed at Kemza's legs even as he went down, and the Raksha avoided the scythe-like swipe only by a most unwizardly bound backward. Then Yasmina cried out sharply as she saw a woman she recognized as Gitara glide out from among the rocks and come up to the man. The greeting died in the Devi's throat as she saw the malevolence in the girl's beautiful face. Conan was rising slowly, shaken and dazed by the cruel craft of that blow, which, delivered with an art forgotten of men before Atlantis sank, would have broken like a rotten twig the neck of a lesser man. Kemsa gazed at him cautiously, and a trifle uncertainly. The Raksha had learned the full flood of his own power when he faced at bay the knives of the maddened Wazulis in the ravine behind Kurum village, but the Sumerian's resistance had perhaps shaken his newfound confidence a trifle. Sorcery thrives on success, not on failure. He stepped forward, lifting his hand, then halted as if frozen, head tilted back, eyes wide open, hand raised. In spite of himself, Conan followed his gaze, and so did the women, the girl cowering by the trembling stallion and the girl beside Kemza down the mountain slopes, like a whirl of shining dust blown before the wind, a crimson, conoid cloud came dancing. Kemsa's dark face turned ashen. His hand began to tremble, then sank to his side. The girl beside him, sensing the change in him, stared at him inquiringly. The crimson shape left the mountain slope and came down in a long, arching sweep. It struck the ledge between Conan and Kemsa, and the rock she gave back with a stifled cry. He backed away, pushing the girl Gitara back with groping, fending hands. The crimson cloud balanced like a spinning top for an instant, whirling in a dazzling sheen on its point. Then, without warning, it was gone, vanished as a bubble vanishes when burst. There on the ledge stood four men. It was miraculous, incredible, Impossible, yet it was true. They were not ghosts or phantoms. They were four tall men with shaven, vulture-like heads and black robes that hid their feet. Their hands were concealed by their wide sleeves. They stood in silence, their naked heads nodding slightly in unison. They were facing Kemsa, 
but behind them Conan felt his own blood turning to ice in his veins. Rising, he backed stealthily away, until he could feel the stallion's shoulder trembling against his back, and the devi crept into the shelter of his arm. There was no word spoken. Silence hung like a stifling pall. All four of the men in black robes stared at Kemza. Their vulture-like faces were immobile, their eyes introspective and contemplative. But Kemza shook like a man in an ague. His feet were braced on the rock, his calves straining as if in physical combat. Sweat ran in streams down his dark face. His right hand locked on something under his brown robe so desperately that the blood ebbed from that hand and left it white. His left hand fell on the shoulder of Gitara and clutched in agony like the grasp of a drowning man. She did not flinch or whimper, though his fingers dug like talons into her firm flesh. Conan had witnessed hundreds of battles in his wild life, but never one like this, wherein four diabolical wills sought to beat down one lesser but equally devilish will that opposed them. But he only faintly sensed the monstrous quality of that hideous struggle. With his back to the wall, driven to bay by his former masters, Kemsa was fighting for his life with all the dark power, all the frightful knowledge they had taught him through long, grim years of neophytism and vassalage. He was stronger than even he had guessed, and the free exercise of his powers in his own behalf had tapped unsuspected reservoirs of forces. And he was nerved to super-energy by frantic fear and desperation. He reeled before the merciless impact of those hypnotic eyes. But he held his ground. His features were distorted into a bestial grin of agony, and his limbs were twisted as on a rack. It was a war of souls— of frightful brains steeped in lore, forbidden to men for a million years, of mentalities which had plumbed the abysses and explored the dark stars where spawned the shadows. Yasmina understood this better than did Conan, and she dimly understood why Kemsa could withstand the concentrated impact of those four hellish wills, which might have blasted into atoms the very rock on which he stood. The reason was the girl that he clutched with the strength of his despair. She was like an anchor to his staggering soul, battered by the waves of those psychic emanations. His weakness was now his strength. His love for the girl, violent and evil though it might be, was yet a tie that bound him to the rest of humanity, providing an earthly leverage for his will, a chain that his inhuman enemies could not break, at least not break through Kemsa. They realized that before he did, and one of them turned his gaze from the Raksha full upon Gitara. There was no battle there. The girl shrank and wilted like a leaf in the drought. Irresistibly impelled, she tore herself from her lover's arms before he realized what was happening. Then a hideous thing came to pass she began to back toward the precipice, facing her tormentors, her eyes wide and blank as dark gleaming glass from behind which a lamp has been blown out. 
Kemsa groaned and staggered toward her, falling into the trap set for him. A divided mind could not maintain the unequal battle. He was beaten, a straw in their hands. The girl went backward, walking like an automaton, and Kemsa reeled drunkenly after her, hands vainly outstretched, groaning, slobbering in his pain, his feet moving heavily like dead things. On the very brink, she paused, standing stiffly, her heels on the edge, and he fell on his knees and crawled whimpering toward her, groping for her, to drag her back from destruction. And just before his clumsy fingers touched her, one of the wizards laughed, like the sudden bronze note of a bell in hell. The girl reeled suddenly, and consummate climax of exquisite cruelty, reason and understanding flooded back into her eyes, which flared with awful fear. She screamed, clutched wildly at her lover's straining hand, and then, unable to save herself, fell headlong with a moaning cry. Kamsa hauled himself to the edge and stared over, haggardly, his lips working as he mumbled to himself. Then he turned and stared for a long minute at his torturers, with wide eyes that held no human light. And then with a cry that almost burst the rocks, he reeled up and came rushing toward them, a knife lifted in his hand. One of the rakshas stepped forward and stamped his foot, and as he stamped, there came a rumbling that grew swiftly to a grinding roar. Where his foot struck, a crevice opened in the solid rock that widened instantly. Then, with a deafening crash, a whole section of the ledge gave way. There was a last glimpse of Kemsa, with arms wildly upflung, and then he vanished amid the roar of the avalanche that thundered down into the abyss. The four looked contemplatively at the ragged edge of rock that formed the new rim of the precipice, and then turned suddenly. Conan, thrown off his feet by the shudder of the mountain, was rising, lifting Yasmina. He seemed to move as slowly as his brain was working. He was befogged and stupid. He realized that there was a desperate need for him to lift the devi on the black stallion and ride like the wind, but an unaccountable sluggishness weighted his every thought and action. And now the wizards had turned toward him. They raised their arms, and to his horrified sight, he saw their outlines fading, dimming, becoming hazy and nebulous, as a crimson smoke billowed around their feet and rose about them. They were blotted out by a sudden whirling cloud, and then he realized that he too was enveloped in a blinding crimson mist. He heard Yasmina scream, and the stallion cried out like a woman in pain. The devi was torn from his arm, and as he lashed out with his knife blindly, a terrific blow, like a gust of storm wind, knocked him sprawling against a rock. Dazedly, he saw a crimson conoid cloud spinning up and over the mountain slopes. Yasmina was gone and so were the four men in black. Only the terrified stallion shared the ledge with him. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production. 
of The People of the Black Circle, Part 2 of 4, by Robert E. Howard. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. You can also rate and review us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Every little bit helps. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music